Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to welcome you to today's event, which should be a pleasurable and also an instructive event. My name is Craig Calhoun, and it's my honor to be here as the director of the school and to welcome you, those who are not from the LSE campus, to the LSE campus, and all of you to this discussion. The plan for the conference is to have a series of uh, discussions which move us from the context of the Robbins Report itself, the anniversary that we are celebrating from 50 years ago, through to contemporary issues on the structure for higher education and then the questions of financing higher education and shaping the future of higher education. The way in which we will organize this is to have three speakers, then each give their talk, then have questions from the audience and discussion, and then some concluding remarks from the final speaker. I won't take up much time with introduction, but let me make a couple of comments. One of them is simply to reflect on how extraordinary the Robbins Report itself was and indeed remains as a document, as a, an example of research-based research to inform and provide a basis for policy. The Robbins Report was compiled by a commission that held 111 meetings, think of it, that gathered an enormous range of statistics and other kinds of information on British higher education. And this in a day when, as it says in the introduction to the synthetic volume of the report, there were 31 universities in Britain, and that is if you counted those that existed on paper and were not yet functioning. Okay? It was a very different lay of the land in 1963. And of course, the Robbins Report contributed to the transformation of British higher education in generations to come. The second and last thing I want to say by way of introduction is to remark on the fact that there hasn't been anything like the Robbins Report since. We have had continued transformation of British higher education the founding of new institutions, a few consolidations, a few losses, the rise of private universities, expansion of the sector as a whole. Policies have changed quite dramatically in recurrent intervals. But at no point has there been a similar stock-taking, a similar effort to base new policy on the sort of exhaustive research and assessment of the mission of higher education and the state of the entire sector that the Robbins Report offered. Policies have certainly drawn on knowledge and information, advice from academics and others, reports from various think tanks. But this kind of comprehensive look at what Britain was trying to achieve with its entire investment in higher education is very distinctive. And I think it's something that we can regret that we haven't had the same sort of production of a comprehensive analysis since. In this first session, the Robbins Report, then and now, um, we will have three speakers. 
And I want to make clear that though I am excited to have the three speakers, I take no credit for their presence. I want to, um, for this session and for the whole day, thank my colleague Nick Barr, who is the primary organizer of this conference, who is uh, an extraordinary authority and has been throughout much of this period of transformation, authority on British higher education and its implications for other sectors, and who has worked very hard to bring today's events together. The first speaker will be Professor Lord Laird, Richard Laird, who will talk about what the world was like then, the context in 1963. He'll be followed by Klaus Moser. Lord Moser will discuss the report itself. And then Professor Sir David Watson will discuss the British road to mass higher education, what happened later. And Simeon Underwood will offer concluding remarks after the questions. So with no further ado or delay, let me invite Richard, Professor Lord Laird, to speak about the 1963 context of the report. Well, uh, I am just a warm-up for Klaus, uh, and I want to say straight away what an incredible experience uh, it was for me and Eleanor, who's sitting somewhere here, Eleanor, uh, to work, work with Klaus. Um, of course, I, I, we're not the only people who've learned an incredible amount from Klaus. I think we all owe him a terrific debt. Uh, and I have actually just spent my life trying to uh, follow his example. Uh, so uh, that was one wonderful feature of it. But of course, the other wonderful feature was working for, for Lionel. Um, and he had this extraordinarily open mind on all these issues. He was absolutely determined uh, to be led by the evidence. Uh, and uh, I had never had an experience of this sort before. <laughs> it was absolutely extraordinary. Having these two wonderful people uh, exploring this issue just felt like a, a, great, a great voyage of discovery. Uh, it, it was amazing. So let me go back to the start, um, what it was like. Um, before Robbins, and what were the, uh, the issues and pressures which led to the setting up of the committee. And I, I think there were two absolutely key influences. Uh, the first is what you might call the Sputnik influence, uh, the feeling that the future of our country, and, and indeed every country, depended increasingly uh, on its technological uh, manpower for its uh, economic uh, advance. That was, as it were, the manpower side of, uh, of the story uh, and the other of course was the huge pressure from young people uh, for places, the growing demand uh, for places and the fact it was becoming more and more difficult uh, to get in. Uh, so that's the sort of demand for places side of it and of course corresponding to these two pressures that had led to the setting up of the committee were two different views as to what the committee ought to be trying to do when it thought about the future uh, of the universities. One view was that they should be uh, organised to meet the manpower needs uh, of the country. Uh, the other was that they should be organised uh, to meet the demand for places uh, from uh, qualified uh, students. Um, uh, that, that was the biggest issue uh, facing the committee. I think it's still a, a, a very big issue facing our country. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to say a bit about those two things. First, the manpower situation, uh, and then the uh, demand for places uh, issue. So 
I wonder how many people here saw Sputnik. <laughs> Not very many, but I remember vividly being in the kitchen in my flat in Cambridge, and, and there it went. And uh, the world has never been the same, same since. It made the most extraordinary uh, impact. Uh, of course, within uh, two or three years, uh, Kennedy had retaliated with the Apollo program to put the man on the moon. But I think every country completely reassessed its view of the role of technology in the, the, the future of the, of, of the nation. Uh, at, at that time. At the same time, there was the big movement amongst economists uh, to recognize the importance of human capital, is what they had to call it, um, in uh, the uh, prosperity of a country. So there was a much more uh, of an economic focus on education uh, than there ever had been before. So people were looking at how were we doing uh, compared with other countries. Uh, and, of course, in terms of higher-educated manpower, we were way behind the two superpowers. Uh, we weren't actually that far behind most European countries, and we were way behind the superpowers. This made uh, a big impact. It, it led to the setting up of the Scientific Manpower Committee, uh, presided over by Solly Zuckerman, uh, which did its own projections as to how many uh, scientists, technologists we would need, and, th and he was arguing this is how the system uh, should be planned. Intellectuals also were carried along by this, many of them, not all of course, there were always Luddites, <laughs> but many were carried along. I mean, the most influential was the speech by Geoffrey Crowther, who had been editor of The Economist, uh, in this building, um, in which he said that the present uh, higher education policy in Britain was a formula for national decline. This made a big headline. Um, I wouldn't say everybody was carried along by this. Um, uh, I, I shall never forget uh, the first day I went into the office and there was a, a, a note had arrived from the Treasury, a two-page note. There used to be two pages in those days, uh, written by Otto Clark, Charles Clark's father. Uh, in which he said, uh, at the moment, 4% uh, of the population are going to universities. If we think seriously, can we really imagine that there'll be graduate-level jobs for more than 2%? Uh, so that, that, that was a, an alternative view. But by and large, everybody could see that there was a growing uh, labour market demand for higher educated people. Uh, this, in turn, had, was raising the relative wages of graduates, and you could see that, and Gary Becker's Human Capital was showing this. Uh, and then, of course, uh, that had its impact on young people and led more and more uh, to want to go to university. So let me turn now to the demand for places. If you were looking at that, you saw rising numbers of people uh, with two or more A-levels, which was a sort of minimum entry qualification at the time. Can, can everybody hear me? Any problem? Uh, that was a minimum entry qualification. And uh, places for new entrants to university were rising less fast, uh, so that over about five years, the ratio of people getting into university to people achieving these basic qualifications had fallen by about a quarter. So this was leading, of course, to a great deal of political pressure from middle-class parents for something to be done to, to, to expand uh, the university system. And then on top of that, this is quite important if you think of it conceptually, there was going to be a huge increase in the population of people of university age coming from the number of people born uh, just after the war. So that was in sight. 
And were we really not going to take that into account because we were trying to do some calculation uh, based on manpower needs? Well, the committee, uh, as you know, and I'm, I'm sure Clive will say more about this, took the view that it was the demand for places that should be the, uh, the basic guide to the expansion of the system. That's what it was there to do. Um, and I still think that that was the right approach. But of course, there have to be the right conditions. So first, there have to to be the right, uh, uh, the right level of subsidisation uh, of the system so that you don't get an excessive demand and you don't get a deficient demand. Uh, and by and large, that what the economists were saying was that the subsidy should be uh, enough to uh, compensate the individual for the external benefits which he conver- con- confers on society by, by getting educated, which of course are very big. They pay... We, we, we graduates pay a lot more taxes <laughs> as a result of being graduates, and so on. Um, but also, uh, and this was mentioned in the report, we should take into account the fact that these people are going to be in the upper end of the income distribution. That's the, the equity aspect, which should also be reflected in the degree of subsidisation. That's, co- that's condition one for the demand for places approach making sense. Uh, and I'll comment on it in a, in a second, but let me just go through the others. The second, obviously, is that they've got to be demanding something. There's got to be something sensible there for them to demand. There's got to be a sensible core structure being offered uh, to which the demand um, is being addressed. Um, I'll say something about that. And then, of course, students should be well informed. So let me just comment on those, those three conditions, because I think they're very important and relevant to the debate today. Obviously, uh, Robbins recommended a much more subsidised system than we have now. Um, and I think one could somewhat justify that in terms of the situation then, that the, 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 the system was far too small, it needed stimulating uh, a sort of infant industry type argument. With mass education, uh, it's less clear that the externalities are as big uh, and certainly the problem of affordability. Um, But what is interesting is that we are not uh, immune from the manpower needs approach at the moment. We've got the most extraordinary subsidisation of science and technology by social science and humanities. Uh, uh, absolutely huge cross-subsidisation going on by our students of, of social science and humanities in most universities, and maybe less so here, but in most uh, subsidisation of science uh, and technology. I think there's absolutely no intellectual uh, justification uh, that could be offered for that. Um, now then, the second point, as I said, is there's got to be a sensible pattern of courses that people can demand and um, Robbins was very clear and there was a lot of pressure at the time for broader courses that was, the, that was on the whole the trendy thing to be in favour of was broader courses and of course pressure for the, uh, the British baccalaureate uh, and all of that in six forms um, that, 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 what Robbins said about that had no effect on anything uh, in fact, the system has moved on the whole. Certainly the upper end of the university system has moved to more specialised courses. Um, and I think this is because Robbins didn't really address the main issue about uh, breadth. And I think most this is true, actually, of most of the discussion of the baccalaureate also. The, the, the main issue is how to get everybody quantitatively competent. Yeah. 
And if only we had just said that, that math is the key to... Uh, if everybody was competent mathematically, uh, we would have basically dealt with uh, many of the problems of narrowness in our system. Uh, I think we would have probably had much more impact uh, than we did. And finally, information. We still provide far too little information uh, to students, so they have very little idea of what their courses are going to lead on to and so on. Uh, that, that is uh, a major uh, shortcoming. So, having adopted the demand for places as the basis for the planning of the system, um, you had to uh, try and forecast it. And I think this, this should always be done. It's a great pity there isn't more long-term social forecasting going on in Britain now. But it was really important then because there were big issues about whether to open new institutions and how many and where and so on. Um, so how, how could we forecast uh, how many young people would be wanting to go to university and capable of having the uh, requisite qualifications to do it? There was a big debate about that, which was the so-called pool of ability debate and uh, there were uh, some uh, amazing participants in this debate there was one uh, Ferno W.D. Ferno a professor at Brunel uh, I think he was a psychologist but uh, John Vasey always said that he wore a white coat so people should think he was a scientist <laughs> anyway this was his science, he wrote this book called The Chosen Few and the idea was that you would look first at the proportion of people from professional families um, in each tranche of ability who were going to university. And you would say, well, that's the most uh, uh, of uh, people of that level of ability who could ever go. And then you would assume that eventually uh, the same proportions uh, of each uh, level of ability are reached in, in each other social class. Uh, and then you do your calculation. How many people are would ever, at the ultimate, uh, be capable of going to university? 7.5%. Um, well, it doesn't take a genius to realise that what was going on was that people uh, in every social class were becoming more and more likely to go to university. And, of course, they, that continued. And I think I've read something from Howard that says that the, uh, what has happened since Robbins is that, roughly speaking, the percentage point increase uh, in the university entry rate has been about the same in every social class. Uh, so uh, this is a huge movement affecting all strata of society and any of those uh, stupid formulae uh, would not give us a sensible answer. Of course, the most obvious other uh, change is that only a quarter of people going to university at that time were women. So that was another huge untapped uh, pool of ability which weren't allowed for in these calculations. So uh, the thing I think I most enjoyed uh, working for Robbins was our lambasting of the pool of ability, um, which I think went down uh, quite powerfully in the uh, debate that followed in the country. So what we did was to forecast just by extrapolation um, over a period of uh, 20 years uh, and our, our extrapolation actually turned out to be too low um, because what has actually been going on in higher education uh, is the same sort of thing has happened in agricultural markets that you get a, a big upswing 
you start with a shortage, you get a big upswing, then you get a, a bit of a surplus and it, and it levels off and then you get a shortage and it swings up again. So we had a big, huge, huge upswing until the 80s. Then we had the levelling off for about 10 years and then we've had a huge upswing uh, since then. Um, that's a much uh, simplified way of describing what happened. Um, I don't want to go on much longer and I can't see what I've done with my watch. <laughs> but let me just uh, uh, mention um, three, more, three more issues very quickly that were, were in the debate, in the air. One, of course, was the institutional structure. Uh, the teacher training colleges uh, were moving to a three-year course. That had been decided. Questions were they to become part of the university system. Uh, Similar changes were happening in FE colleges. Many of them were moving into degree-level courses. Should they be parts of universities? Uh, Robin's recommended binary. Um, and I think, again, these are uh, decisions that made sense at the time but were then uh, changed later in a way that has also made sense. The other thing of which the same could be said is a staff-student ratio. And the staff-student ratio at the time was something like 8 to 1. Uh, and the report supported a staff-student ratio, again, to you know, get a quality system off the ground. But uh, I think for all kinds of perfectly sensible reasons, it's now about, uh, about double that. And um, to some extent, I think we are more able to handle a worse staff-student ratio because of technology. And technology makes higher education and communications uh, that much easier without face-to-face -face contact. And the third uh, particular thing I'd like to mention before I stop is the dog that didn't bark in Robbins. Um, <laughs> there was very little said about research. Uh, and I think it should have been discussed more. Of course... Uh, perhaps only in the light of what happened afterwards. As we know, in the years that followed Robbins, America came to totally dominate research in the social sciences and the humanities, uh, which has been a very bad thing for this country and for most of the world and contributed to the crash and other things. Um, nothing was, was suggested in Robbins about the necessity of, of really building up our, our domestic social science um, and humanities uh, research. And uh, I fear that it's, roughly speaking, the same situation now. We're, we're, we are not engaged in the counterattack that is needed uh, in order to get high-quality leadership in social science um, shifting back uh, to other parts of the world as well as America. So, <laughs> won't go on. Uh, almost anything else you can think of is in Robbins. The report weighed, I think, six pounds, uh, sold more copies than the Denning report on Christian Keeler. Uh, it was a pre-election year, uh, and we knew it was going to be uh, accepted, and I think it did a lot of good, and I feel incredibly lucky to have been involved. And thank you, Klaus. Showing my PowerPoint throughout. Yes, that was, that was, that was foreshadowing. Uh, Richard was engaged in foreshadowing the coming presentations. But next we have Professor Klaus Moser to discuss the report itself. Klaus? 
Can I just try whether this machine works? Yeah, fine. Okay. Um, well, I find it very, very moving that this event takes place here. It's very appropriate because Lionel was a passionate uh, believer in LSE, spent most of his life here, and if I had my way, I would just talk about him as a wonderful man, but that's not my role. My role is to say a few words about the committee and how we worked and basically what we did. And um, I'm not going to talk about the relevance of Robbins to today's problems, uh, much so I'd like to, uh, but uh, you will have known or seen that David Willard published a major pamphlet yesterday which uh, goes into that subject, and so you can, you can read it for yourselves. Um, now, the committee, this is the report, or rather, this is the report, because with it go ten volumes of appendices, and that tells you something of the work we did. And um, there was a research team, which Richard and I led, Eleanor White is here from that, and some, perhaps some others whom I don't know about. Uh, but um, there were 12 committee members, including Lionel, uh, there were two secretaries, and there was me. And uh, I th think I am right in saying, sadly, that I'm the only survivor. Even that statement actually is a bit controversial <laughs> in the sense that the government's main social science journal, which I hope you all read, um, in the issue seven years ago, the main article started with a sentence in the words of the late Sir Klaus Moser. <laughs> And, uh, and just in case anybody might be uh, misled, later on in the same article, it said, um, as Professor Mo as Klaus Moser wrote just a year before he died. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm hoping that by the time I finished you will not think that they were right. Um, anyhow, we worked unbelievably hard. Um, I think I attended every one of the 111 meetings and, uh, and certainly the seven journeys abroad. And we visited lots of universities and colleges in this country. It was very hard work, uh, but for me, and I suspect for others, and perhaps for many people in the community, uh, for me certainly it was the most exciting, most exhilarating, most challenging work 
I've ever had to do. And of course, Lionel was the most wonderful person to work with. And I became totally devoted to him throughout the rest of my life. I'm happy to say this in the presence of his daughter, whom we're very pleased to see here. Um, he was, a, he was a, a very unusual chairman, I think, uh, in my experience at any rate. Um, if you remember that there was quite a bit of disagreement at the beginning of the meetings, especially on the issue of enlargement of the student population. Um, by no means all of them were on side. I'll come back to that in a moment. But um, I don't know how to summarize really what was so special uh, about Lionel as a chairman because there is no doubt in my mind at any rate that this is the Robbins report. Um, what I think is in my mind is that this man, and of course some of you knew him as a fellow <coughs> academic here uh, and perhaps in other places. Um, first of all, he seemed to have unstoppable concentration. Uh, I keep on losing my mind and my way in meetings. Not Lionel. He seemed to take in every word that was said. Moreover, he remembered what people had said in a previous meeting. So when we saw one of our 110 witnesses in person, that is not to mention the 400 documents we received um, from outside, um, he would not only question people with extraordinary insight, but he would remember what they said at a later meeting. And I find that really quite powerful. Uh, he was a very powerful interviewer, very, very very, very focused and very courteous even when he thought they had talked absolute rubbish, which certainly some of them did. Incidentally, all the, all the interviews we took uh, are published and some of them uh, make very good reading now. I've reread quite a few of them recently. And uh, there are also a number of uh, uh, written contributions in the uh, volumes that are well worth reading. Bill Bowen, the distinguished late American economist, and his views on how to measure education uh, was a classic, and that's in there. Jean Flood and Shelley Halsey's uh, work on social mobility was a classic and uh, is, is, uh, is published. And, um, 
Anyway, uh, his, his qualities as an interviewer um, and as a rememberer was quite extraordinary. And I think what this resulted in was that we had a more or less unanimous committee. I say more or less because there was one minority report by, uh, what was it called, Southall, was it? No, um, I can't remember. No, it wasn't Southall. And who um, uh, disagreed with what we said about machinery of government. But otherwise, it was, it was uh, agreed. And that was really Lionel's achievement, again. What he did was he disappeared, uh, known to his daughter, to his little country house on the sea, and wrote the report, more or less by himself, this. Um, he then brought it back, and as we've been sitting for nearly two and a half years, um, by this time, committee members uh, were more brave in standing up to him. And uh, he had a very bad run on that draft committee report. And I always sat, ne sat next to him, and uh, I noticed he didn't write anything down. But he took it all in, and he went back to the week for the weekend and brought back a rewritten version, which more or less is what you have here. I mean, he, I think he loved writing, and he wrote very well and very subtly. So um, that, again, was an achievement. As for the statistics, Richard and I will need no reminder that it was a tough task. Above all, the uh, expansion which Richard has talked about, um, but much else. I mean, we did lots of new surveys. Why did we do new surveys? In Lionel's view, not just to help the committee, but because the public was underinformed about higher education. They ought to get better statistics. It was truly a social scientist's report, in my view. Anyway, um, uh, as an experience for any committee members, um, it must have been fairly shattering at some of the time because um, uh, he achieved, as I said, unanimity. Uh, there were one or two people, which might, might remember them better than me, who opposed our expansion, really. Dame Helen, well, she wasn't a dame. Helen Gardner, the very distinguished English academic, was against, and one or two others. But more people on the committee um, were very impatient uh, to do the expansion in terms, Richard hinted at this, 
in, in terms of manpower needs. In other words, why do we expand? Because the country needs more engineers or more doctors or more historians or whatever. Now, this economist, no mean economist, Lord Robbins, uh, had no time for such manpower forecasts and simply would have none of it. And uh, although there were people who said, well, we really should, on the committee, who should, we shouldn't expand unless the country really needs these people. That was brushed aside. And it was Lionel who pushed us uh, to the, to the um, other extreme. And I repeat it once more, although Richard referred to it. Our rule was, our golden rule, was courses of higher education or places should be available for all those suitable by the quality and ability to attain uh, places and to wish to do so. And we had the task, the statisticians had the task, of, um, of estimating that and um, although it can now be said that the door was sort of open to expansion at the time, which in a sort of way it probably was politically, and there was the Anderson report beforehand and so on, um, there's no doubt at all that it was our work, if I may say so, on what we call pool of ability that turned the corner. And it was a very, it was a volume just as big as this. I've left it at home. And uh, if you want to read a simpler version, Richard and Laird actually wrote a penguin about it, um, how we did the pool of ability. And uh, it was quite complicated. It was not just a question of demographic forecast. It was a question of uh, ability, attainment, desire, etc. And we did our best. We did the, uh, did the uh, sums and the estimates with all the uh, care and accuracy and skill we were capable of. And I would give more credit to my colleague Richard and to myself for bringing it off. But it did bring it off because it persuaded whom? Lionel Robbins. And once it persuaded Lionel Robbins that these numbers, um, considerable increase in numbers by 1980, uh, we only went to 1980, I think, didn't we? Um, um, made sense, and he persuaded the committee not totally, but enough for them to vote for the committee in, in the end. And um, also, not just that, but with the extraordinary result that the government accepted the Robbins report within 24 hours of publication. I don't think that's ever happened before or, sen or since. It was a remarkable, remarkable 
achievement, I think, for the committee to uh, to really back uh, back this expansion. I seem to remember that the most powerful voices on the committee uh, in favour of expansion. I may I may be wrong after 50 years. Um, I was already quite old then. Um, uh, I think were the then head of Imperial College, who's on the committee, Sir Philip Linstead, and the Vice Chancellor of Leeds, who was very powerful, Sir Philip Morris. Um, I think they were, and also the head of the Institute of Education, Elvin. But I, I may. I may uh, do injustice to people who are dead. Anyway, it, it happened, and as we now all know, um, um, there's a, a rise in numbers quite incomparable with that rise. Um, and uh, Willard, in his pamphlet yesterday, uh, says quite a lot about that. Finally, I do want to stress one thing. Although in terms of action, that of course was the headlines and was what changed, sort of changed the world in this country. Um, I want us almost to just to list what to me, but not perhaps only to me, uh, seem the small number of, of major things in this report which are so uh, vital and have so much meaning today. Number one, um, Lionel took great care throughout, and we had to take great care throughout, as statisticians, um, to uh, not just to deal with the universities. Um, so we dealt with teacher training, which doesn't mean that the government then, then dealt with it, but we dealt with it. Teacher training, uh, FE, and so on. And throughout the report and throughout the statistics, we always distinguish those categories. That was a very important broad mark. Secondly, um, a certain confidence, perhaps misjudged, that the government purse would go on doing its bit, which it was doing then. Well, it wasn't to be, but um, I think it can be argued uh, that the Robbins report is a little bit too lightweight on finance. Uh, we'll hear more about that uh, later. Um, Lionel was certainly against loans at the beginning, but he later changed his mind and said so. But it's not our strongest hand. Um, thirdly, however, very, very strong and very important pages 
even for today's reading, is machinery of government and the vital necessity for universities, universities to have their independence and complete autonomy. And he believed in the UGC of then, uh, and uh, that's a very important part of the report. Um, next, um, uh, interestingly enough, quite a lot, quite a lot of attention given to the relation between universities and schools. That's quite interesting. Fourthly, however, and I've left really to last, is I think there is no doubt uh, that in Lionel's own mind, teaching came top. Not that he ignored the research, of course not. The report is quite careful to deal with both as two sides of the same coin. But um, Lionel's passion was, um, was in teaching, and I, uh, uh, the minister interviewed me and Richard at one point, and I told him a true story of Lionel, which he told me himself, um, that when he came to the point here, as head of the economics department, some of you will know about this, um, and said that he told the director, Sidney Kane, I think, at the time that he had to give up a certain amount of LSE work. But one thing he was never going to drop was first year <coughs> teaching. I wish today was like that. Um, and that was a passion of his. And if you read the first chapter and the references to Confucius, you will get that feeling. And I know it is true. I mean, without wanting to do down research. But things have changed massively. It is interesting that the newspapers yesterday, in welcoming uh, Mr. Willis, report. Um, both the Guardian, I think, and the Times stressed that uh, the minister seemed to be allying himself totally with this, quote, bias towards research. And coupled with that in the Robbins report was a very strong element on anti-specialization I mean, Lionel himself was the least specialized of men. He liked quoting Adam Smith, who said, or wrote, the economist who is only an economist, unless, of course, he's a genius, is not much use to society, even as an economist. It's a very good quote, which he liked. And he very much based himself on that, and there's a great deal in here on, uh, uh, on anti-specialization. And I read this report now, and not least 
the chapter two, I think it is, which is about his own, well, the committee's, I should have said, the committee's own ideals and principles that the student, undergraduate and, of course, graduate, is center stage. And uh, to my mind, there's no doubt about that. So as I look back on it, I must admit with great personal pride that Richard and I and other researchers were so closely tied up in it for two and a half years or more. And I gave hundreds of lectures afterwards uh, on the subject and Lionel and we dedicated books to each other and Lionel truly came, became uh, a central part of, of my life. And I would recommend today, today's reading, especially on the ideals and principles in that early chapter, which changed the tone of discussion at the time, undoubtedly. And it's a great joy to me that the discussion has reopened 50 years hence. Thank you, Director. Thank you, Klaus. It's been a pleasure to hear from you. David Watson from Oxford is the next speaker. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to contribute to this important anniversary for LSE and for higher education in the UK. It's an enormous privilege to share this platform with Richard Layard and Klaus Moser. Um, Nick Barr set me, I think, an almost impossible examination question. He said, he described the examination questions he'd set to my two distinguished um, fellow panel members and then said, and then you tell us what happened next and you've got 20 minutes. <laughs> well, what exactly did happen in, in, in the UK? How we became a mass higher education system and why we haven't quite managed to become a universal system is a complicated story. And in my 20 minutes, I want to approach it through four main lenses. Talk a little bit about rates and types of participation, a little bit about paying for it, a little bit about legislative attempts at control of what is going on and their mixed record of success and institutional dynamics. And if I've got a minute or two at the end, I'd like to conclude with a few remarks on where it leaves us today, almost exactly 50 years after Robbins. Since time is short, I'm going to rely on some simple charts. I was tempted to put them up and just let them speak for themselves. But for Martin Trowe, famously, national higher education systems lose their elite designation when each age cohort rises above 15%. Um, anything between that and 40% was, for him, mass higher education. And above 40, it became universal. Although without fanfare in the mid-1980s, Trowe revised that particular milestone to 50%. 
Uh, in his and in others' use of this term, there's a strong sense of civilization being abandoned at that point. But as every schoolboy knows, there's an element of canute on the beach about um, these projections. Most developed systems have now burst through these barriers, and those that haven't would like to. In the UK, even with the usual pre-fee increase spike, which we see every time there is a fee um, increase on the horizon, we are stuck at 49%. The figures are significantly higher in Scotland at 55%, although it's very dependent there on sub-degree qualifications. And across the UK, as Richard's pointed out, female participation is now universally about 10 points higher than male. But even with this spike... The OECD's education at a glance last year would leave us behind Korea, Japan, Canada, the Russian Federation, Ireland, Norway, and New Zealand for young persons' participation, and behind a slew of other major competitors like the United States, Sweden, Netherlands, France, Germany, Hungary, Spain, on the lifetime measure of tertiary um, achievement. Lord Robbins and his report, in fact, inaugurated Britain's version of mass higher education. He wanted a bigger and a fairer system. To take bigger first, in tro-like terms, he envisaged a shift from an APR of around 8% in 1963, about 216,000 students, to 17%, 560,000 students, in 1980. Remember those figures for a minute or two. And meanwhile, on fairness, as Paul Temple wrote eloquently in the Times Higher in July, there was actually no going back on the enunciation of what Klaus has called the golden rule, the ability to benefit uh, rule, that all applicants with appropriate qualifications ought to have places. More has emphatically not meant worse. The system we have now is significantly better in all sorts of ways to the system he and his colleagues had as they began work. That said, the government of the day didn't follow his advice. Uh, they never do after these major reports, even though they say they will. And he left some important unfinished business, and the road since then has not been smooth. Here's the big story. These are student numbers, not FTEs, between 1960 and 2010. And as you'll see, we've essentially experienced two spurts, in each of which the system doubled in size. One was after Robbins, and another one before Deering. Crudely, Robbins was invited to have a vision. Deering had to make sense of a reality. Uh, one was very much about prescription, of a new future. The other was about rationalizing what had already happened. And I do hesitate to, to disagree with the director. I think the Deering report did re uh, represent a taking stock of some significance in, in the late 1990s. Uh, the report weighed about the same as, as, the, as, the, as the Robbins report, if you, uh, if you want to take that particular measure. But as you would expect, the picture is actually, um, well, sorry. Let me just interject here about APR. The related APR reached 12.5% by Robin's target date of, of, of 1980. Remember, he thought it might get to 17% by that stage. But then it got to 32% by 1995 and about 42% by 2005, where it plateaued again. 
But as you would expect, the picture is more complicated than that. Robbins focused very heavily on young full-time students on first degrees, mostly living away from home. He did have concerns about postgraduate study, about part-timers, and about adult education, including what he termed, and I quote, refresher courses for graduates in industry, courses for married women wishing to start or resume their careers after bringing up a family, as well as more general courses for those wishing to enlarge their intellectual and aesthetic horizons. But I think he would have been surprised by the system that we have actually built. From about 1994-95 onwards, a majority of students in our system are not on full-time first degrees. What does this mean? Well, paradoxically, the UK has established a position as one of the most lifelong learning-friendly systems in Europe, with, for example, a strong record in admitting mature students. 31% of first-time undergraduates are aged over 21 on entry. 14% are aged over 30. In 2003, Brian Ramsden compared the characteristics of British undergraduates with those in the Euro Student 2000 survey, a survey we didn't take part in at that stage. And he established that we had the highest proportion of part-timers, the oldest average age, the highest level of reported disabilities among students, and the second highest representation of students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, second um, after, after Finland. And meanwhile, the overall pattern of participation in higher education has almost defeated this exclusive emphasis on young, full-time, undergraduate students. More than half the registrations, as I've said, are now on other modes and levels of study. And the fastest rate of growth is at the second cycle, particularly, as you will see, on taught postgraduate um, courses. On fees and funding, the story is more complicated than we sometimes want to admit. The biggest spurt of development, that spurt of development in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you could call it the Baker-Clark system, was quite significantly paid for by divide and rule. In effect, the traditional universities cartelized, as you can see here from the unit of resource in the university sector, uh, in the face of an invitation to bid competitively for growth. The public sector of higher education had different ideas, and then the two systems were combined, of course, from the late 1980s. But the effect overall in that quite short period was to halve the amount of funding um, per, per student. This is, in a way, where um, Martin Trow's nightmare becomes reality in terms of mass higher education. And this is also the era in which public sector higher education, um, the so-called um, uh, public sector higher education sector that was then under the national advisory body, became a slight majority, became slightly larger than the traditional um, university sector. This drop in the unit of resource was the context that led to the Deering Report in 1996-97. And when the committee was set up, there was a real sense of crisis in UK higher education. There was also a sense of paralysis within the major political parties in terms of what to do about it. 
not least when in the spring and summer of 1996 institutions threatened to start charging top-up fees. And the parties then colluded in order to take the issue out of the 1997 election. Of course, exactly the same thing happened in 2010 with um, the Brown Report. Incidentally, and I've, I've looked at this recently, I don't think we've ever had a British political party that has gone into an election with a manifesto saying, let us either have fees, or once fees are there, saying, let us have higher fees. There's always been um, a way around it. Even in 2001, the, the Labour manifesto said, um, we will not introduce top-up fees because we have legislated against them. And, of course, then did something quite different. In response to that, Deering broke a mould that is at least as significant as Robbins. This was the killer chart from uh, the report in 1997. It goes to the heart of what are now termed, somewhat misleadingly, student contributions. You'll note if you look at this that in a context of increased spending on higher education in real terms between 1979 and 1995, the funding of institutions to provide education and research was effectively flatlined. It goes up from about four to four and a half billion in the context of an overall rise of um, just over five to just over, over seven. And those were the circumstances in which the committee bit the bullet and suggested that domestic and, as was soon established, European Union students should make a contribution, about 25% of the costs. Robbins had been talking about around 20% of the costs being associated with fees to their education. And the rest is history. I don't have time to, f to pursue the full vicissitudes of the subsequent story, but I do want to make two editorial comments on this. The first is that every serious debate about funding higher education institutions in the UK morphs almost overnight into, into a single question about support for full-time undergraduate students. Um, that then effectively crowds out the, the bigger question, and you can see it characteristically in the second reading of bills when all sorts of concessions and, and um, adjustments are made on that single variable. The second is that our, our latest framework for um, fu funding higher education, you could call it Willits Clegg, will in effect, as forecasts are forced to fall on the amount of money that will be paid back in what is essentially a very generous loan scheme, the so-called RAB charge, reverse the situation created pre-dearing. More and more money will be needed actually to plug this gap as less and less comes back, and less and less will be available to support the system as a whole. Uh, Stefan Collini has written very effectively about this in the, in the current uh, London Review of Books, 24th of October. Uh, the New York Post was... Um, blunter when it looked at a similar proposition in the United States. It had a headline on the 6th of June 2010, which I think has been very heavily plagiarized around the world. Subprime goes to college was, was the headline in 2010. Now, in a way, that's emblematic of my third major point about the British route to mass higher education. 
Robbins also, and I am sure inadvertently, inaugurated the UK's experience as the most tinkered with by national government in the world. In 2005, Rachel Bowden and I advanced the proposition that we have actually been the fruit flies of the international higher education system. And the Australians run us a a not very close second on this. But you can contrast fruit fly systems like ours with turtle systems, like, for example, Switzerland, where there is a lot of debate about change, but nothing ever happens. Um, To put this point very crudely, for every third cohort entering the system since Robbins, the system has in some respects been thrown up in the air by a government claiming that it's fixing the sins of the previous administration and often fixing the sins of the previous administration supervised by its own party. This wouldn't matter quite so much if there were a well-understood direction of travel or a consistently articulated final goal. Instead of which, we've had some quite strong mood swings in terms of public policy on higher education, on issues like the size of and provision for the sector, um, both within, as set out here, and across governments of differing stripes. We've had radical changes of mind about institutional status, the question of what a university is, moral panics about dumbing down, subject choices, graduate skills and debt. We've had the quality wars and a discourse about world-classness that actually flatly contradicts most of the social and economic goals being set for higher education by regional and national strategies. That's also put pressure on the peculiar pattern we have of institutional types in the UK. Peter Scott tried to make sense of this in the mid-1990s when he identified 12 subgroups of universities in his seminal work, The Meanings of Mass Higher Education. One of them, number five, he had to call sui generis because he just couldn't shoehorn them into into any of the other um, categories. And I've added on what, of course, has happened um, since then, especially the arrival of the independent uh, for-profit institutions. Um, Against this background, it's remarkable how hard the system has fought to maintain some sense of a controlled reputational range, principally through shared quality assurance and the peculiarly British British phenomenon of external examination, also exported to parts of the Commonwealth, and how resolutely public policy has, in, in fact, acted to undermine this while saying that it's doing the opposite. One result is that this rather traditional typology of institutions, this is the sort of Faberian ideal types of universities in in, um, higher education scholarship, has been radically altered. If you look at this scheme today, which separates out international research universities, professional formation, curriculum innovation, including open and distance learning, um, and so on, The only possible conclusion now for large-scale institutions is that we are all hybrids now. Every big institution contains at least some elements of each of these. Even the for-profits at the bottom, the for-profits that are making the most progress are those where uh, companies have made alliances with existing institutions to support and uh, deliver certain parts of, of what they do. 
Now I'm going to conclude with a few quick-fire illustrations of what this has meant in terms of institutional performance. And I've segregated these by the mission groups or the so-called gangs in higher education. And these these charts are all based on reanalysis of the data in UUK's patterns of higher education institutions. Um, The gangs in question are, of course, the Russell Group of self-proclaimed research-intensive universities. They're the blue ones. The 94 Group of smaller research-intensives. Million Plus, which claims to educate over a million students, made up chiefly of former polytechnics and Scottish central institutions. Guild HE the representative group of pre-1992 colleges of higher education, and the University Alliance, a group formerly called the Non-Aligned Group. I think they, in a way, they are, they are the Groucho Marx Club in, in, in higher education. Incidentally, to show just what kind of construct this is, in, in um, 2009, Brian Ramson and I invented an association called the Association of Seaside Universities. And we wrote to all 14 institutions that met certain criteria. And I have to say, all of their vice-chancellors joined in. And, and we got the most wonderful manifestos from the 14 institutions, which are, which are published in, in, in my book on morale in, in, in university. But here you can see how some of these uh, groups do cluster. My first two slides are about... Uh, the enrolment of full-fee-paying international students. Incidentally, a very important component of our story. Without them, um, STEM in the UK would be in an even sorrier state than it is at the moment. So here are enrolments of international um, non-EU domiciled students with the Russell Group way over to the right and um, also on economic terms. Although notice here that there are one or two high-volume players Uh, in terms of recruitment from the other groups as well. Uh, The next couple are about socioeconomic participation. And here again you can see um, one set of groups, one cluster of groups, all the way um, up at one end for ethnic minority participation. London is a big factor here too. Um, Ethnic minorities are overrepresented in London. Percentage of, 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 of young people from socioeconomic groups four, five, and six. Here the position is reversed. Look at all the blue down at the other end. Here's another moral panic. Um, Grade inflation. Um, If you ask the man in the pub who who was responsible for the modal degree becoming not a 2-1, sorry, not a 2-2, but a 2-1, Uh, I'm sure they would think that it was the former public sector of higher education. Actually, all of these changes have been focused very much in the the blue end of the the scale. Public funding of research is almost the mirror image of the participation question. And here you can see a very, very steep curve indeed. But there's an interesting rider to this. As more money has been concentrated in these institutions, the ability of these institutions to leverage and gear other types of of research funding has actually gone down. And that the statistical set now includes an indicator on that. And you'll see that many of the non-REF, REE winners are in fact very good um, at this. 
But perhaps most important and most interesting of all is the data on economic performance. I've showed how uh, on all these other indicators there's a concentration in certain self-identified groups in the sector. When it comes to economic performance, you'll see that it's all over the place. Here, institutional status clearly does not rule. The institutions that have managed well and those that have managed less well are actually all over the sector. You can't predict economic strength by institutional status. This looks at net liquidity. This looks at the classic measure of surplus and deficit as a percentage of income. The target here is always 3% plus. This looks at exposure to long-term debt. And this combines um, those four indices into something called the security index. Well, what does this all mean? I think I've got three minutes left, Nick. Uh, Pointing forward to this afternoon's discussion, I draw one very simple conclusion. If UK higher education is going to prosper in the contemporary world, it's going to have to become messier, less precious, more flexible, and significantly more cooperative. To take a worked example we're going to have to look more like one half of the North American system. Politicians and commentators who look at higher education in the USA generally fixate on one or other of two models, the Ivy League, especially Harvard, or the Californian Master Plan, which is now sadly melting down. That polarity points to two different ways of experiencing initial higher education in America concealed by the national average data that's put out by the OECD and others. Fewer than half of American undergraduate students, a little just fewer than half of American undergraduate students, go to four-year public or private residential colleges and universities, and a very respectable proportion of them complete their degrees on time. But meanwhile, the other more than half, just more than half, has a messier route. They invariably complete their bachelor's degrees in institutions other than the ones in which they start, with gaps, with a mixture of full-time and part-time study, a lot of experience of earning while learning, and above all, by accumulating credit for what they achieve along the way. And even the most prestigious institutions are ready to accept each other's course credit, to admit students with advanced standing, and essentially to play the credit accumulation and transfer game. And because of the success of that messier half of the system, over 60% of the population has a serious experience of tertiary study. And in popular culture, college is positively referenced and valued. That last conclusion may be um, uh, somewhat doubtful now, especially because of the, the rise in costs. But in general, I think it's still true. David Blunkett was correct responding in 1998 not just to Deering but to Kennedy on further education and Fryer on adult education in his green paper The Learning Age in thinking that the UK had the building blocks for a world-leading system of lifelong learning. Nationally, as I've tried to show, we'd created against the official tide a remarkably open and responsive higher education system. Historically, We've led the world in the professional accreditation of higher education qualifications. Forty years ago, we invented a particularly powerful and effective open university. 
We've got an amazingly innovative formal and informal adult learning um, network. Look, for example, at the University of the Third Age. Um, as of today, there are nearly 900 centres around the country with over 300,000 learners registered. And by 2015, we shall have raised the school leaving age and hence the springboard into post-compulsory education to 18. But at the same time, we've had some countervailing obsessions. As I've showed, our discussions about funding always converge on the needs and support of younger full-time participants living and studying away from home. Thus, the latest post-Brown settlement has led to the melting away in 2011 to 12 of part-time and mature entrants. Um, the, the, and I won't go into the statistics, I don't have time, but um, uh, there's a HEFSI report that nails all this down. We also have a kind of permanent mistrust of the preferences of the student market embedded in policies that have led to the failure of successive supply-side STEM initiatives. We love institutional hierarchies, and we tolerate their symbiotic relationship with class and income-related status. And we have a fear, almost verging on paranoia, about regulating the private and for-profit sector to the same standards and levels of the public sector in case they take away their ball. There are many jurisdictions around the world that absolutely do not do that. They use the private sector for public purposes. Um, and we have apparently not learned the lessons of individual learning accounts. Um, wonderful chapter in either... Crew and Anthony King's The Blunders of Our Government on Individual Learning Accounts. It's called The Great Training Robbery. <laughs> the big picture is that if we want a system of post-compulsory education with better prospects for achieving our social, economic and cultural goals, we're going to have to take lifelong learning more um, uh, seriously. And here's a final picture for you. It's taken from the report of the inquiry into the future for lifelong learning um, in 2009. It tells the story, I think, better than I can in words. It's taken from a study by uh, Andy Fuller in, in Scotland. Uh, each of these lines represents the, the educational life course of one of 1,009 young people between 16 and 24. And just look at how complex the mixture of life experience between schools, schemes, part-time work, full-time work, um, unemployment and stepping out of the whole system actually are. The royal route does exist for many, A-levels, Scottish hires and then university. But many of these other stories are very, very much more complex and I would suggest uh, equally valid. I think Lord Robbins would have been fascinated to look at that part of his legacy. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. We now have an opportunity for questions, comments. And may I ask you to identify yourselves when you speak? Sorry, the blue shirt in the middle. I also wait for microphones. <clears throat> What I, a question for everybody. You talk about statistics of people going in, you talk about statistics of student numbers. 
what you did not talk about was statistics of non-completion. And can you say anything? When you talk about that, what do we know about that, and how does that change over time? Because that has quite substantial implications, including for this Okay, the question is for any member of the panel, and it is about non-completion rates, as distinct from input and output rates and how they matter. Do any of you want to take up either whether this is part or how this is part of the Robbins report or later discussions? David? Well, non-completion rates on full-time courses uh, have dropped a bit. They haven't dropped to anything like the OECD um, average, and I think it's remarkable that they have held up in many ways as well as they have under the kind of pressures of the, of, of the development of the system. Uh, we're now a little bit behind um, Japan, for example, on this, where we were, in fact, um, in, in lockstep with them for a while. But um, one of the visions for the future that I'm trying to set out would not regard completion on time of full-time degrees as the gold standard for the achievement of the sector um, as a whole. Do either of you want to add anything to that, Richard Klaus? Okay. Nick Hillman, I see in the back on the side there. Uh, thank you. Um, could I ask one question to Lord Layard and Lord Moser and one to uh, David Watson? Um, my question for Lord Layard and Lord Moser is, was the Robbins principle... Um, revolutionary, as today's pamphlet uh, uh, on our seats suggests, or conservative, as my current boss, David Willits, was arguing yesterday in his pamphlet. Um, because, you know, well, I think you can make either case. I'd be very interested to know your, your idea. I think the argument that is revolutionary is, of course, David Watson's charts, and the argument that is conservative is actually, it's not a particularly radical principle to say people with the aptitude and the ability to go should go. Um, it'd be interesting to get your take on that. And my question to um, Professor Watson is um, to, well, the, the first thing is your list of, of things that have been argued over since Robbins's day uh, was a long one. Uh, of course, one might argue that actually shows politicians have engaged with higher education, because um, sometimes the argument is that uh, politicians care much more about schools than they do higher education. And my specific question, um, uh, as I say, my current role is special advisor to David Willits. My future role is uh, director of HEPI. So on the RAB question and whether the current loan system is a full I'm very interested because obviously the government says it is and my new employer says it isn't. Um, and, and I get lobbied very heavily by both sides. But I'm just I'm, I'm keen to know, because there's lots of arguments, exactly why you think the current loan system is, is unaffordable. There are people in this room who tell me that the government grossly overestimates the costs because the government actually... Um, lends money at close to 0% and we assume uh, we apply an interest rate um, in our calculations and, and for students much higher than that. So um, I'm keen to know exactly which bit of the debate about RAB charges you uh, were referring to. Thank you. Okay. Let me first restate the question. Klaus, the question to you is, was the Robbins report revolutionary or conservative? Well, at the, at the time, it was regarded as revolutionary in the numbers sense because it was 
a very dramatic increase that we suggested. And I don't think that can be questioned. Um, <clears throat> on other things, um, I, I, I mean, all the other things I mentioned, I mean, they, they weren't being discussed much in, 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 in the public. It's, that makes the question impossible to answer, really, because uh, at that time, most of the reports, Newsom and the other one, Krauser, and so on, were about schools, mm. and higher education wasn't a subject. I mean, most of you are not old enough, but it wasn't a subject that we discussed a hell of a lot. But uh, I don't really know the answer to your question. Richard, would you like to weigh in? Well, no, I think it was, it was revolutionary. And I, I think we were only at the beginning of the period when um, governments were thought to be responsible for higher education. Uh, I mean, at, at that time, uh, you know, the universities were very autonomous and they, they had this peculiar arrangement that they got some money, not from their government department, but from the, from the Treasury through a committee, um, because it had been thought desirable, particularly, of course, after the experience of the war, when governments became more active, for governments to get involved in all of this much more than they had been in the pre-war period. So I think this was the first uh, time when the governments took responsibility for meeting the demand for places. But, uh, I'm not an expert on your subsidisation uh, issue today uh, and what the scale of it is and, and uh, it's a difficult calculation but I, I really think that it was a terrible tragedy that uh, as we move towards putting more of the burden on students we use this word loans uh, it, you know it's got mixed up with the, the, the awfulness of debt debt in every possible way is thought of as being terribly bad. I mean, this is much more like a graduate tax uh, than a loan, what we have, because it's a, a percentage of people's income. The only thing which makes it into a loan is that how, how long it goes on depends on how much um, you've received up front. But it would have been so much better if it were talked about as a contribution or some phrase like that rather than a loan. Can I just, uh, Director, say one other word? Um, I suppose why, to us on the committee, it looked more revolutionary than perhaps it looks to you now, is because our chairman wasn't actually a revolutionary. Yes. I think his daughter would agree with that. Um, Lionel was, if anything, a liberal at that time. He wasn't actually in favour of it, of of, uh, of serious expansion. He was converted by the figures. So, I mean, it, we did feel that we were doing something rather extraordinary. David, do you want to speak about loans? Well, we could, we could get into a very complex seminar, and Nick and I have been there before. And so I would just say a, a, a couple of things about approaches to the RAB. That there are essentially two ways of looking at it. One is the classic future modelling of what incomes are going to look like and when people will get above thresholds and how much they will be able to, to um, return. The other is actually to try to track what eligibility to repay and to repay in full will look like. 
I find it deeply suspicious that the rab that was announced in relation to a loan of £9,000 on much more favourable um, to the student uh, repayment terms than the loan of £3,000, which was uh, there earlier, should have started out with exactly the same rap. And, and I did try with some of the um, um, experts in the department to see how this number just got translated from from one spreadsheet um, uh, uh, to another, and was assured that it did all add up, but they couldn't show me exactly um, exactly how. And when you when you consider that this is an obligation that will um, occur not only over a lifetime, but also across a whole range of regional economies, where in in some it will take a lot longer to get to 21, 22,000 pounds as a repayment threshold uh, than others, and all the way across the European Union. And I, I think that one of the problems with the RAB will be that the, that the number of people from whom um, uh, returns are uh, elicited in due course will shrink. And you can look at, at, at other examples around the world. Uh, New Zealand has been forced to put an amnesty on some of its repayments because of the flight of professional, um, uh, professionally qualified students in, in certain subjects. So there is an amnesty now for certain types of students returning to New Zealand. I think the 70% RAB, which is already being mildly discounted on a, on a, on a monthly basis, is, is whistling in the dark. I'm going to guess this hasn't 100% satisfied Nick, but I'm going to call on Rick Trainer next. Thank you. Uh, Rick Trainer, King's College London. I wanted to ask about specialization and the Robbins report. Lord Layard and Lord Mozart both commented that the Robbins report uh, recommended a broader approach to courses. And yet, uh, I think it's clear that until very recently, uh, there hasn't been much of a trend in that direction. I think in the last few years, maybe there's a, a, some evidence of a rising appetite for greater course flexibility and so on in UK University of Scotland. Of course, there's always been a partial exception. But uh, I wonder if um, any of the panelists might like to comment on why they think that recommendation evidently had so little if effect. Anyone on specialization and why the recommendation for breadth didn't have more effect? It's not. It's certainly then. It it wasn't a it wasn't a popular theme. I don't think at all. But it was very very central to Lionel's personality. I mean, first of all, he was a great economist. He was passionate and knowledgeable about the arts, music, etc., etc., and he—he—I know this really was passion, perhaps, perhaps more than anything else in the report. He keeps on referring to it in different places, but um, that—that it's a bad thing to be like the quote I gave from Adam Smith, just to be an economist. We're no good as an economist because that's not a human being. I mean, read chapter two, but it doesn't answer your question why it didn't catch on. Can you say anything about that? Well, I, I think it's actually the result of expansion because as, 
uh, universities expand, so the departments become more powerful. Yes. So, I mean, if you take LSE, um, we used to have something called the BSE Con, and the departments were very weak. And the, in the it was called BSE Con, but it was Trade Descriptions Act uh, violation. Um, you, you, well, that's what you, the economics you, department you, you said. You could basically, within the BSE Con, do any mixture of the things that which, were, which were being taught in the school, I and mean, that stopped as the departments became stronger. And, and I think that. Um, Problem, prob- as you say, there is a bit of a swing back, and it perhaps is more true in the new universities. I don't know, um, but it it, um, it it requires a, a much more of a, an act of leadership by the univer- the top of the top of the university, to bang the heads of departments together to make such things happen. Uh, and I think it's pretty desirable. Um, and certainly, as I as I was saying in my comment, I do think that the most serious feature of our um, specialised systems are, are the production of, of uh, art students who are completely unquantitative um, and, 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 uh, and often become quite influential in fields like journalism and even the civil service um, without knowing the difference between 100 and 1,000. Um, so <laughs> I think, and, I mean, if I can just mention, uh, since you sort of gave me a chance, <laughs> um, when uh, Tessa and, and, and David Blanket and I, in a minor capacity, were working together, we, we developed this idea of um, an AS level in the use of maths, um, which would, we hope, become a standard university entrance qualification, you know, a standard thing that university expected on the UCAS form and there was the idea that it would have a separate little box on the UCAS form where everybody would put in what they had done. Um, uh, I think this would have, had a very, would have had a very good effect on the whole um, numeracy of the, of the elite or whatever the next step, step onwards is uh, in British higher education. David. I'm a huge fan of, of AS use of maths. I, mm. I agree that it really ought to be in matriculation. I'm not just so sure that the story about breadth is quite as bleak as, as, as represented. As, as you mentioned, Klaus, the report came out at the same time as the Keel experiment was beginning to bite, and it was actually probably around the time of the high point of the Keel experiment. Um, what killed the Keel experiment was the, the fourth year of funding and, and, mm. and squeezing the four-year course back into three. There were a number of new universities that inaugurated joint degrees around that time. Both East Anglia and Bath were very keen on, 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 on joint degrees. It's very interesting that the recommendation about breadth was also Ron Deering's favourite recommendation from the Deering report, and he always wanted to know what was happening about breadth. And an interesting thing is happening in higher education and the student market around the world at the moment. That There is a narrative that says that the student market has become very, very instrumental. And that is broadly true. But there is another narrative running alongside it, which is true also, which is that in conditions of economic uncertainty, students around the world who are able to choose are choosing to study things they want to at the first cycle and are looking towards the growth of the masters and second cycle to, to nail down their, their professional and 
and, and, and vocational qualifications. And there is something of a revival. It's not a majority, but it's a substantial minority of interest in, in liberal higher education, I think, around the world. Good. Tessa Waxter. Get the mic. That is a comment. Go ahead and call it Megnet Desai. Yeah. It is briefly, I, I always felt that the broad education was a gentleman. If you wanted a job, you had to specialize. Nobody had anything those days. It's only later on with technology and de-skilling that, you know, business has a way to hire anybody. Because you can do your computer, 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 you can do your I think one of the great effects of education is a silo system. You enter one university and you're committed to stay there if you graduate. If you don't, you don't even get a piece of paper which tells you how many hopes you have. And I think when and how soon will we get a reform and we're going to be very process system with black shit in America there, that brings it to an right under the middle volunteers to ask about the difficulty of transferring and mobility in the British system. David. Well, it was interesting that um, having a, an operating credit system was one of the recommendations in the learning age in, in, in David Blunkett's um, uh, paper to which I, I referred. And for various reasons, we haven't delivered on that. 
I've actually got a, 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 a report on that coming out for the leadership of what is the foundation. I didn't quite understand. Credit, uh, what is the, the the use of credit and the capacity to yeah, transfer among universities? From, and, and, and Robbins, of course, um, was very keen on people moving to other universities for postgraduate work. There's a there's, a, there's a powerful point in in the. Um, in, in the report where he talks about the value of not having your higher education solely in one institution. Okay. Anyone else? The third row here, we have a question. This side in the third row. You're on the wrong side. Yeah. first answer is that in our, the sums that we modestly achieved, Richard and I and our staff, uh, of course the whole basis was trying to be not to threaten standards. What happened afterwards, I don't know, but that's the first answer. Standards always change. If you, if you read... Um, Mary, does anybody here read Mary Beard's wonderful blog? Um, uh, M- Mary Beard had a, an excellent blog not long ago comparing the classics Tripos paper of 2010 with that of, ni- of 1910. And she established the fact that the students in 1910 couldn't hardly have started to answer the questions that were there in, in 2010. And that was because of a lot of cultural changes and, a, and the expectation of a much broader range of references by, by the examiners. So I, I think the, the standards over time question is a very, very um, difficult one. Uh, Ron himself, Ron Deering, wrote a very interesting um, uh, chapter in one of the... I think it may have been in the report that Tessa was referring to, where he talked about the 20-year problem. 20 years ago, everything was fine. Except when you go back 20 years and you look at the experts, then they are all saying, 20 years ago, um, everything was fine and standards have have, have fallen off the table. I I don't mean to be flippant about this, but actually expectations, capacities change. And we might at the moment, in higher education, have one of these situations where there's almost a maximum generational dislocation between people designing higher education experiences and those, and I don't just mean first-year undergraduates, I mean young professionals as well, who are coming in to experience these courses. If you look at, at the facility with the information and communications technology environment, for example, they're radically different between teachers and, and, and students at the moment. 
So I'm, I'm sceptical about saying that um, informally more means worse. I think more means different. Richard. I just wanted to add that um, I don't know where the question is coming from, but uh, if the implication is that somehow if the standards have fallen, uh, there are too many people, I think that's not the right way of thinking about how many people there should be at all. Um, we should really be asking, um, you know, is, is, this, is this a good enough investment for the people who go? Uh, and uh, as, as I was saying, the rates of return are really, really high at the moment. So, uh, yeah, it's, whatever this, the exact standards are, if you can, make, if you can even define such a thing uh, in, in a meaningful way, um, we, we, we can certainly feel confident that what people are doing is worthwhile. With apologies to all those who want to get in and ask questions, I'm going to ask Simeon Underwood to give us some concluding remarks because our time is tight. David mentioned just now a piece which appeared in the London Review of Books last week by Stefan Collini, one of our after-lunch speakers. In it, he referred to university managers as the local variant of a pragmatist in a suit. I stand here before you as one of the LSE's local variants. As a lifelong university administrator, I spent 36 years reconciling pragmatism with regulations and sometimes even with principles. As a lifelong university administrator, I spent 36 years wearing a suit, not, I hasten to add, the same one. (laughs) But I'm not very apologetic about standing here in front of you. Um, If we believe in the university as a collegiate entity, then the administrative salaries have a view and a voice as much as the academic Mozarts. Before I get on to my main point, I just want to pick up one or two pragmatic points from the wonderful talks we have heard this morning. It's been a joy to have the infill of history, to know um, both the processes that went on to lead to the Robbins Report and to get a sense of what happened thereafter. In Richard's talk... I pick up on almost a passing remark about condition three, that students should be well informed. I thought that particularly interesting because it is a mantra to which governments return time and time again. It's one of the key issues in the 2011 white paper, Students at the Heart of the System. I'd actually say from my stance that I think universities have taken this one very seriously and that students are much better informed than they were in Robbins's day, both about what a university education involved and what it could mean for them afterwards. So although we see in university prospectuses beautiful pictures of blue skies and lovely buildings, we also see a lot more data about earning power, degree destinations. Um, There is a huge amount of material on the website, and we should not underestimate the savviness of our students in finding it. The government's key information sets, a recent invention, actually largely build on what was there already. I think there's an interesting shift of focus from what students get afterwards to what they get while they're here, but that is still working through. As Klaus was speaking, I was sitting there thinking they did all that without word processors. 
They wrote that book on typewriters by hand. The annexes with all those tables had to be absolutely correct. There's no monkey around with late changes. And that issue of technology, I think, also is a very interesting one in relation to some of Klaus's comments at the end about Lionel's passion for teaching, including to first years, before all this stuff before even, I suspect, overhead projectors. I found that thought of a a pre-technology report fascinating. And on David's piece, my pragmatic comment, he took us more or less straight from Robbins to what he called the Baker-Clark growth of the late 1980s. But many of us remember what actually came between. One of my first memories of working in the sector was attending a meeting of the Leeds University Senate in February 1977, which was discussing a decision to freeze all posts as they fell vacant. There was outrage. This was the end of Western civilization as we know it. The engineering professors and the dean of the medical school in particular were incensed. And they were not soothed by explanations offered by Lord Boyle or Professor Arthur Brown, Chair of the Planning Committee's Subcommittee on Planning. Yes, that body did exist. My sense of 36 years in the sector has been, even in what look in retrospect to have been boom years, a sense of running fast to stand still. David talked about the changes which have led to mass higher education, To set the scene for the next session, I just want to draw attention to one or two features of the current UK system, which seem to me to be distinctive in relation to the sector Lionel Robbins knew. I'm afraid I'm a wholly unquantitative arts graduate. I'm a classic, I am a closet classicist. I'm not going to talk about data. I'm not going to talk about structures or technologies. I want, for a few minutes, just to take a people-led viewpoint. We've talked a lot about the growth of the sector. I think a very important factor in what is happening in universities these days is the growth of individual institutions. When I started at Leeds in 1977, it had 11,000 students. It now has 30,000. When I started at York in 1980, it had 7,000 students. It now has 15. Even when I started here at the LSE in 2000, it had 7,000 students. It is now going on past 10,000 students. What does that mean for the individual within a university, the individual member of staff, in particular the individual student? How is their relationship with the institution, their relationship forming, shaped by this factor? And seeing Jay and Rosie over there, what does this mean for students' unions in this context? Also, I throw into this growth in size a growth in architectures. Many new, new buildings are developed as grand statements, maybe even verging on the grandiose. Have we lost a domestic human scale? Especially significant, in my view at least, is the change in the balance between teaching and research. Lord Boyle used to refer to teaching in an atmosphere of research, a benign concept like warm drizzle. (laughs) In yesterday's Guardian, we had Willits argues that Robbins's vision was one in which research and teaching complemented each other, but this idea has been lost. 
Quotes, looking back, we will wonder how the higher education system was ever allowed to become so lopsided away from teaching. The blog posters were, of course, quick to point out that the major driver in that transition has been the decision by government and its agencies to invent research selectivity exercises, the RAE, the RAF. But was that claim to at least what some academics in the sector have wanted? One outcome the REs and the REFs have had is to make academic staff more aware of their, of their financial worth, their actual capital value to institutions. Maybe we are going to see a world in which institutions need to incentivize staff to do what in the past they might have done as part of their role, particularly in relation to what might be termed the citizenship side of their duties. Another outcome, I'd suggest, is that the relationship between staff and students has changed. Perhaps this is an example of rose-tinted spectacles. We have this nice image of very close individual relationship between undergraduates and their tutors. Ralph Miliband and Harold Lasky is an example which comes to mind. But another LSE example puts that in context. When in 1960s Margaret Hodge was a student here, she broke her leg, didn't come in for six months, and no one noticed. <laughs> Richard said that um, technologies were a major factor in the change in the SSR. I suspect this all happened sooner, and that in recent years something else that has had a real impact here is the way that academic supervisors are no longer expected to take a lead in supporting students in difficulty. There's been a growth of support services. Counselors, dyslexia advisors, mental health specialists, visa experts. The next move might be the emergence of US-style financial aid offices in universities. All of these take away that old relationship, whether it was good or bad, between academic staff and students. This naturally leads on to another issue I'd just like to touch on, the growth of the size of administrations and managements. In some old editions of the LSE calendar I've looked at, the complete administration fits onto one side of A5. Now, there's plenty of explanations for the growth that has happened since. I'd often thought that this trend is not likely to reverse itself any time soon. There are no signs that government and its agencies intend to deliver on the promise in the 2011 White Paper to strip back excessive regulation. So, for example, although there are signs that the quality assurance may have passed its high tide, at least for more established universities, I'd offer you a new emergent area, the bureaucratization of risk. Risk registers, emergency planning, business continuity planning, a visible increase in alternate audit activity. And a final change that follows on from some of the other things I've been talking about is changes in governance. I recently found some notes that I took many, many years ago from the great work Moody and Eustace Power and Authority in British Universities, 1974. And their point that runs throughout the book is that there is no single locus of power, that power is always diffused, that power is always just where you are not, whether you are the director or a head of department or a member of council or whatever. I also found, while I was looking for this talk, the Jarrett Report of 1985, with its model of making the director a chief executive officer, its wish to give the power to council. Roll forward now to 2013. 
My own sense is actually of a growing academic disengagement from this part of university life, from the governance of their own institutions. Klaus described Lionel Robbins as a passionate believer in his institution. When we hear this afternoon the competing visions that were offered for the future, I, for one, will be measuring them against Lionel's passion, belief, ideals, and principles. Thank you.